Good morning, everyone. I expected to be a little more crowded because mostly 9.30 people would be here. But <laughs> All right, let me get set up. I forgot to reset my tablet here. All right. So as Pastor Mike said, I am Tom Cantalina. I'm one of the elders here at Chantilly Bible Church, and I want to welcome all of you to our service, both in the room and online. I'm glad you could join us. And I will start by saying I made the mistake of watching one of the episodes of The Chosen last night, so I absolutely feel completely inadequate to be up here preaching to you. Uh, but with that, I'll use a, an example or a phrase I've used before because whenever I handle the Word of God, I'm always afraid I'm going to get in the way of it. And that's something I should be afraid of, which is kind of ironic giving my job. My job literally as a senior leader in the Air Force or in the medical service is to brief senior leaders, generals and admirals on what we're doing with the medical record and medicine in the military. And my decisions impact thousands, if not millions of people. Yet I'm more nervous today than when I get in front of those people because of how important what I have to say is. And I think we all need to handle the word of God with that level of reference. Now, the good thing is, even though I feel inadequate, I only preach one or two times a year. So those of you who are new and you don't like what you're hearing, please come back because you know, that's not a usual preacher here. Now, those of you who do enjoy what you're hearing, I do have a Sunday school class every 930 in the sunroom so that you can get into the details. Um, I do want to pause a moment. This is in my notes, but I do want to say thank you to the translators. I know that when I talk, I'm not very good about following exactly what I write down. And that makes it very hard for the translators to translate what I'm saying to all of you who need that assistance, whether in Chinese or Spanish. So uh, May Win and uh, Lou, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. So this week, we are jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the reordered series. And I chose this title, Simple Not Easy, because last week we were talking about living as lights. Pretty straightforward, being a light on top of a hill like a city on a hill or not hiding our light under a bushel to be a light in the world as we had mission emphasis week. But as I looked at this passage, three, what you'd say, simple verses that could very easily be taken out of context, I realized while it is simple, because you just could take them as little proverbs, the depth and richness to understand them is not easy. And even more importantly, while it seems like simple things to do, let's all be honest, as you get to understand it, if you do know anything about these verses, they are not easy to do. The other part, I hope you start to tie together, not only with my sermon this morning, but this whole series, is that this further re-emphasizes why we are a church here at Chantilly. That based on our mission statement, we are here to make fully devoted followers of Christ who love God and love others. And as we dig into these verses in Matthew, as we're wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to start to tie together these many complex thoughts. So as you see these words about the golden rule and the gates, we're going to get into landscaping 101 and talk about how to measure your gate with the golden ruler. No, okay. Maybe not so much. 
But getting back to the point here, uh, and you have your note sheets, and this is the outline on your note sheets. I think the words are pretty much the same. I'm forever editing what I uh, talk about, so I hopefully they're close to accurate. But this is what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to first try to go into that fact that this is a simple statement or group of statements that aren't easy to understand, whether it's the golden rule or the gates, help you understand Christ's logic in following through this passage, and then go more important into what does it look like, which really aligns to the last part of our mission statement, to love God and to love others. So in order to get into this section, as I said, it was a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. Please do not take this out of context. So to catch you up, we're going to go through my 180 slides that I've done in class and Sunday school for the past 20 weeks, just so you can put, no, okay. Yeah, I, I know my humor is not great, but I had to throw it in there. My kids are forever rolling their eyes at my dad jokes. But I think it is very important for us to connect the thoughts. We always hear the word of God, which the Greek term means logos, which if you really dig, dig down, that's logic or reasoning of God. It's much deeper than the vocalizations or the words in a dictionary that we're hearing. And so you have to understand where we're coming from. So as you go all the way back to the beginning of Matthew 5, and I'd love to even go back to the beginning of Matthew 1 and further than that. But at least at the beginning, you have to remember we're started with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. These phrases were not just thrown as catch-alls at the beginning or just some ideas. Christ went into explaining what that means throughout the entire sermon. And I hope you're hearing that every week. And if you haven't been, let me tie some of that together. But what you will see in this list of the Beatitudes, there's eight, some people say nine, but nine is really the repeat of the last one, specifically to his disciples. It starts and ends with inheriting the kingdom of heaven. That's an important point, the kingdom of heaven. We heard a few weeks ago about what that means, about having a king, if you're going to have a kingdom, and we know who that king is, and of heaven, meaning there's something different than that compared to earth. We're going to start getting into verse 12, but I'm going to go to the second part of verse 12 before the first part for two reasons. One, many of you who know me know I love the Old Testament and the richness of it. Others, for the other reason is you have to understand if this verse is saying, is this is the law and the prophets? Well, we have to know what that is so we can put that first part of the verse in context. The Old Testament. The reason I put this up is so you understand that phrase, the law and the prophets. And sometimes you'll see in... Uh, the New Testament, it'll say the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's literally coming out of the synagogues, out of the scrolls, out of the scribes, when it talks about the Torah, the Nevium, the Ketuvium, or literally in English, the law, the prophets, and the writings. I'm not going to go into all the details of what that is. I have in many of my classes. But it really is saying 
all that the Jews know to be true based upon their history in the written word. Get that? We're on the mountain with a bunch of Jews in the Sea of Galilee area. All that you know to be true that has been taught since your very beginning of life and since your ancestors, the law and the prophets, that's what this is. And even more than that, it's not only that this is all of your teaching that I'm talking about. The whole thing things are pointing to. What does the Old Testament point to? Why does the Old Testament exist? What is the main point, as some would say? It is Christ. So when you say the law and the prophets, it's pointing to Christ. And who it is it speaking these words? Christ. So this is how our creator says, says we ought to be. A little bit more weight to those words now, do you think? Now, going specifically to the law, and the law or Torah, which the scribes and Pharisees are very quick to challenge Christ with, Christ addressed that at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, shortly after the Beatitudes, he states, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So while Christ is using different words than the Pharisees and the scribes of that day were used to, he is not changing the point. He's helping us understand the point which is embodied in him as being the fulfillment of the law. So if the law and the prophet, which is scripture, is the holy word, logos of God, then what John said really rings true. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. As I said, the whole point is Christ. And Christ here is saying, I want you to understand the Sermon on the Mount by giving you a summary to make it easy for you to remember. So here we have sandwiched between Christ saying, I've come to fulfill the law, and in essence saying, I am the law, a description of what we ought to do. And it's tying together the complex, the deep thoughts of what is the kingdom of heaven, the law, our behavior, even our thoughts, and how does that all relate? And at the end of chapter 5, it all is starting to be pulled together because Christ said, be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. And here we're starting to see that in words we might understand. The rule is giving a practical application of the righteousness, those who hunger and seek righteousness shall find it, righteousness to be displayed in the kingdom. Now these words 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you, are found throughout literature. In fact, one of the oldest writings by Confucius in 500 BC has almost that exact phrase. And so some scholars, some people might challenge, say, this is not a Christian idea. This is not something that comes from God. This is just cultural. This is just man. This is looking at our knowledge and the things we figured out. Well, I would challenge you that someone came way before Confucius and many others that wrote this down just in different words. Because Moses, who gave us the law back in 1583 B.C., already started pointing to how we ought to behave. And I'll start tying some of those Old Testament scriptures into this so that you can understand this is not a worldly thought. This is a practical application of righteousness in which we love God and love others. So again, going back to putting the sermon in context, here's some summaries that I put up there. The white words are sort of my rephrasing of what is being said. We go from God saying, I've, or Christ saying, I've come to fulfill the law into he starts talking about the do nots. Not the donuts, that's later. The do nots. And that's things by the law which they would have understood to seem written in the scriptures. Do not sin. But he fenced it even more, saying, don't even think about it. And went into very specifics. But then he also went into things that they hear that is in the law is the do's. The practice of piety, as they would use in those terms. Really, our obedience to God which I put with meekness. I almost should put that in white because that matches again to the Beatitudes. Giving, which is us showing grace. Praying, aligning our thoughts with God. Forgiving, showing mercy. And fasting, remembering that everything comes from the hand of God. Or where are we putting our trust? Or where are we having fears? Or are judging our, what are our standards? Where are we looking? What are we asking? What you will see is all of this is coming to a summary in this verse. Because remember at the end of this, what was the story he was talking about? Okay. If a father is able to give his son bread when he asks for it instead of a rock, or fish instead of a serpent or snake, how much more will the God in heaven give you what you need? Not necessarily what you want, what you need because he knows your need. So, or actually the Greek term oin means therefore, and many of us who have done inductive studies, what is the therefore, therefore? Therefore, our behavior, if we are to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, should mirror the same way. We should be doing to others what they need. And a good way to understand that is it's very frequent that what you want most of the time is what you need. Now, we sometimes want things we do not need, but in that same way, if we're thinking about how we want to be treated and we treat others the same way, this world would be a whole lot better place. So the logical flow of the sermon 
is literally following what God already put into place back in Leviticus, where he starts with the do not, but then very quickly goes into the do. And you might be thinking, well, where is that? Well, let me show you. This is Leviticus 19, 17 through 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Oh, that sounds familiar. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. God, way back with Moses, before anybody started using the golden rule, already told us to start to live this way. Christ now is refocusing us with words that might have seemed challenging to the Pharisee and the scribes at the time and something new, but he's not. He's just coming to fulfill the law. He just rephrases it in words and ideas that we could recognize in that day and time. In fact, we see this happening later in Matthew when he's talking to the rich young ruler. And then as he's talking with the rich young ruler, he says, go sell everything you have. The Pharisees kind of, oh, well, let's trap him. So what is the greatest commandment? Because, you know, the rich young ruler said, I follow all these rules. And we all know Christ's response. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So now you're starting to pull together. We went from the Sermon on that where he's talking about God's standard for us and how God interacts with us and how God gives us what we need. Now he says you should behave in a way which aligns with that truth. Do unto others as you do have, would have them do unto you. Okay, that's making sense. That's great. So Tom, why does he now talk about a gate? Why is he going from our behavior, fulfilling the law and the prophets, to a gate and a narrow one nonetheless? One of the things I want to point out with a gate is it's there to separate or keep in or keep out two different things, right? Otherwise, why have a gate? You specific, I have it in a place so that people have to go through it. And once you go through it, you're on one side or you're kept out for a reason. So that's the concept of a gate. Now, this is a narrow gate versus the wide. And he starts out with that phrase, a narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate right after he says the law and the prophets. And we already said the law and the prophets all point to Christ. Are you connecting it? The narrow gate? I am the door. If anyone wants to enter by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have life abundantly. 
He's tying together all of these thoughts. The kingdom of heaven, to get into the kingdom of heaven, is all found in Christ. Now, I do want to make it very, very clear. This walking through the gate or entering through the gate, you might think, oh, it's something I do. Our salvation has nothing to do with what we do and everything to do with what Christ has done. That's why he's putting it here and tying it together and him as the center point of all of this. Because the moment we start to think it's about us is when we start widening that gate. If widening is a word. <laughs> I'm getting a nod from my wife, so I'm good. <laughs> so let's look a little bit more at these gates because clearly the way it is written out, the logic behind it is helping us to understand what Christ is saying about entering the door, entering the kingdom of heaven, coming through him. And where is behavior and acceptance and all of this mixed together? Well, narrow versus wide, hard versus easy, few versus many, life versus destruction. That's literally what's laid out here. He is contrasting these two terms so we can understand them. So the term narrow actually comes from the Greek stenos or stenotic, if anybody has heard that term in medical, I hear it all the time. Uh, it's how we talk about openings in the body that have gotten constricted or very hard to get through. In fact, in infants, pyloric stenosis is one of the things people worry about, that things can't get out of their stomach and so they can't grow and thrive. But it's that strict, that very narrow, makes sense when you think about blessed. And you're like, okay, how does narrow and blessed match? Blessed, if you go back to Psalm 1, when you take the term there for blessed, because many of us think fortunate or good luck means blessed, but the term in Psalm 1 where it says, blessed are those who do not sit at the gate with scoffers, it's talking about Asher or being on the right path, following the design God has put for you. So if you're on the right path, you will find this narrow gate and you will enter through it. Again, this isn't because what you do, but because it's what you have found. So you understand that the notices are narrow, but then it goes into the next step of hard. And I want to tie these two before I go into wide and easy. Hard is another term right there with narrow, uh, with stenotic, or the term is talobo, which really means cramped, crushed, or squashed. That doesn't sound so good. If I walk with God, I get crushed? No, think of it more like the parable of the eye of the needle, where when I take my worldly thoughts, the things I think are good, when it's self-driving my decisions, I need to strip that away. So this hard path is hard not because it's hard in and of itself. It's hard because we're human and sinful, and as we travel it, appropriately with our eyes on Christ, those things will be stripped away. The Chosen episode we watched last night was actually about uh, being in the rough seas and Christ calms the water and Peter walks out. But the point there being in that conversation, is there things in our life that shouldn't be there. And God puts us through trials to strip them away. That's that hardness. 
It's not because he wants it to be hard. It's because he wants to give us what we need. Because what he's in co contrasting that to right now is in this sermon, but applies today to us, is the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those teachers that were relaxing one of these commandments back in Matthew 5.19. Oh, I thought I'd put that in there. He doesn't want to relax the law and the commandments because those are what we're designed to be. And that's also why he says, because the term easy means accommodating, roomy, anything goes, no absolutes. Later he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you have a wide gate and a wide, easy field to get through, one, you might end up there without even looking, which is kind of the contrast we're seeing here. To find the narrow gate, you need to be looking. You need to be paying attention. And as you go through it and follow it, it's not going to be easy because our very nature is in contrast to what it should be. But if it's wide and easy, more than likely, you're in the wrong place. Because you weren't paying attention and there's nobody holding you to a standard. That's why those who find it are few. Because who of us are looking? We have to be actively looking. Those who find the easy path, well, everybody who's not looking is going to end up on the easy path. Which comes to the life versus destruction. Life, Zoe in the Greek, is the state of one who is possessed of vitality or is animate. Physical life. But more often than not, in the New Testament, it is used to describe absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical. Living life to its fullness. We just heard that, didn't we? I am the door to give you life and life abundantly. Not only in heaven, but now. In contrast to destruction. Apoleia is the term in Greek. And it's not annihilation, but that, that which is ruined and is no longer usable. But that, I'm sorry. It's not annihilation, destruction, disappearing, but rather that which is ruined and is no longer usable for its intended purpose. Did you catch that? That which is ruined and no longer usable for its intended purpose. We are created for a purpose. That's what's in there. We may not have caught that, but that is exactly what Christ is inferring. I have designed and created all of the universe for a purpose. And life is that purpose. And when we live as we are designed, which is defined by the law, which is defined by Christ, then we are fulfilling that purpose. But if we don't, if we take the wide, easy way, accommodating, there is no absolute. We no longer fulfill our purpose, our design, and we find emptiness. We find death and destruction. So going back where I said, this doesn't have to do with us earning our salvation. We don't do things to be saved. But it does have everything to do with who do we choose to trust for our salvation. 
If you're doing things to earn your salvation, that means you're trusting self. But if you realize your salvation is a free gift from God and you don't have to do anything, out of gratitude, you will want to do everything as you have been designed. It all starts with choosing to accept the free gift of grace by admitting our need, i.e. being poor in spirit, for a Savior. For when we ask for His forgiveness, He will give it. And when we seek to find the narrow opening, we will find it. And if the gate appears closed, don't panic. Don't worry. Just knock and it will be opened. So this is all good to hear. This is great to understand the tying together of the Greek roots and the integration of all these words and how they reflect back to the Old Testament. But it means nothing if we walk out of this room and it doesn't change anything about us. So what does it look like? Every day, what does this look like? Well, if we are fully devoted followers of Christ, if we have put our trust in the only one that can give us the way into the gate to the kingdom of heaven, we will love God. Well, what does loving God look like? Well, loving God means spending time with him in his word. How do we know how to live if we don't know what living is? As you heard me saying, Zoe, life, life as design purpose has to come from somewhere and God has given us that purpose. So in order to live that life, we have to live in that purpose. We have to know what it is. Those acts of piety I mentioned that he talks to in chapter six, that we ought to take in meekness. Meekness doesn't mean weakness. It means in humbleness, but with power. To give, to pray. He even tells us how to pray because that is aligning our will with the will of God, the one perfect will. That is aligning our thoughts, our finite, errored thoughts with the infinite, perfect God as best as we possibly can. And it also is reminding us of the great gift of life we have given, not only life that we are here on earth, I'm able to stand here and talk to you, but despite my sin, he loved me enough that he sent his only begotten son that so whoever should believe in him will have eternal life with God. What that looks like, I don't exactly know, but I know it's better than here, but we can start to experience it here by living out that life and loving others. When we, in gratitude, and Amy and I were talking about this the other day, if we remember how much we have been given, when we are grateful, a happy heart is a thankful heart for those VeggieTale watchers. When we are grateful for how much we have and we start to think about that, how can we not be obedient to the one who gave it to us? And if we're obedient, that means we're giving to others. We're loving others. 
You've heard me use the definition I use for love is actions, purpose for the benefit of others regardless of self. And Christ lived that out. Everything he did here on earth was for our benefit with obedience even unto the cross and death on the cross so that his name above all other names might be praised. Okay, that's, again, more words. What does this really look like? In my job, whenever I'm talking about a new concept or a new idea or I'm, when I'm teaching, I always want to give use cases. In other words, what, what does this look like in reality? When I walk out of this room, what is it going to look like? We had a great conversation, my wife and my two girls at the dinner table last night. I said, I need some good examples. And for the rest of you, have those conversations, whether it's at your dinner tables, tucking kids in the bed, your home groups, what does this mean? So we were having that conversation, uh, and I got some great ideas from my kids of what does this going to look like when I behave that way? The one that came to mind that was my idea, and I have my three examples. Example one is I wrote down the term mentorship. I've been in the Air Force for almost 30 years. Yes, 30 years, I can't believe it's been that long. How can I, I'm only 18, right? And I can think of many times, especially as I uh, matured in leadership positions, and I can remember my first leadership position, and I was asked to you know, do this and make sure these people do this, and you're like, I wish I had somebody kind of direct me. And throughout my career, maybe four times I can tell you where somebody sat me down and said, Tom, here's some constructive feedback for you to be a better leader. Out of 30 years, four times. So when I got into a formal or official leadership meeting, a uh, position, not meeting, rather than kind of carry a grudge and say, well, nobody ever did it to me, so I'm not going to do it for anybody else. I remember hearing a sermon on this very passage down in Florida, and it inspired me to start a behavior that I continue to this day. For everyone I supervise, in other words, I write their rating or their review, annual review, I sit down with them once a week, and we have a conversation. Sometimes a pleasant conversation where I say, thank you, you're doing a great job. Here's the things you're doing well. And sometimes a hard conversation. And I ask my wife, you want to know if some of them get hard? Because I come home just with the weight of that on my shoulders. These are some people just not quite getting it. But I took that practical application of do unto others as you would have them do unto me. Very literal, very practical. And in that way, there are times where I get glimpses of where those seeds are being planted. Because as we heard last week about living out our mission field, which is our workplace, it should be the way we behave, the way we live speaking loudly about the truth of Christ, that we should reflect Christ in all we do. The second example, I thank my daughter Lily for, because I thought it was very insightful because it also applies to what God was telling us in this very Sermon on the Mount. It's to forgive. How often we want to hold grudges, as it says in Leviticus. We see somebody do something wrong to us. <laughs> I'm not going to go into the long list that quickly came to mind of all the times that I think about things I've done wrong that my wife has forgiven me for. I think the other way around is, well, I need to forgive others the same way, not hold it against them and 
measure them only on their one bad deed instead of their hundreds of good deeds. And how often do we do that? They do one thing against us and we hold a grudge and it never goes away. The irony is forgiveness actually relieves, relieves us from that weight. <laughs> but it also is living out this very passage. And the other example we came up with was just that. That we don't hold grudges or we do not judge. We just heard Christ say that a little bit earlier. Do not judge. What is the standard that you are using to judge people? Doesn't mean do not hold people to the truth and the absolute of God's word as where we ought to aspire to. But the moment you can aspire to it perfectly, then you can hold others to that. As Milt said in his sermon. So what does it look like? It looks like us not getting angry with others because they don't do the things you want them to do. Very early on in my marriage, I learned that when I got upset with Amy, the best thing for me to do is say, do I do the same thing? And more often than not, yeah. I would, yeah. Definitely more often than not. So in order for us to make fully devoted followers of Christ who love God and love others, we have to turn to his truth and live it out. We're going to go into a time of communion now, which I think is perfect to punctuate what we have learned here. Communion has two really important parts to it. The first part is it reminds us of the mercy of God, that he loved us, died for us. And each time we break the bread and drink of the cup, we are brought back to that memory. But more importantly, the term communion starts with that calm in the beginning, which comes into community. That's why it's called community. If we are here to do it together as the body of Christ, to live out the forgiveness that we have been given. Pastor John, could you lead us in communion? It's a joy for me to uh, lead you in communion this morning, to celebrate together, to remember what Christ has done uh, for us. The way we do communion here uh, is we're going to give you a moment uh, to prepare your hearts. And we have the elements uh, on the tables uh, around, the build, around the room here, in the front and in the back. And when you're ready, uh, you can come up uh, and get them and return to your seats and we'll take them uh, together. And so uh, those who are serving, you can come up uh, to the tables. But as you uh, prepare your hearts, I want to read to you John uh, 13. And this is on the day that Jesus was betrayed. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God, and that he was coming back, uh, going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that he was wrapped around. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. And later that weekend, he's about to show them what it means to do unto others, uh, to fulfill all the law through his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. And so reflect on that 
as you prepare your hearts, maybe when you're ready, uh, let's come up and we'll have a seat and then we'll take communion together. Father, we thank you. Uh, we love you. We thank you for your example of humility and of grace uh, for us. Uh, help us to remember well the things that you have done for us. First Corinthians 11 says, Our Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of So after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen. And one thing I look forward to the most. Until then, everything we do uh, is for Christ. So let's stand up together. Let's give praise to him before we leave.